Hey everyone, the information on today's episode is not intended or implied to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnoses, or treatment. All content, including text, graphics, images, and other information obtained on or through this episode is for general information purposes only. This podcast makes no representation and assumes no responsibility for the accuracy of information on or available through this episode, and such information is subject to change without notice. You are encouraged to confirm any information obtained from or through this episode with other sources and review all information regarding any medical condition or treatment with your physician. With that being said, I hope you enjoy the show. another episode of Talking Force. Today we have a special guest in Val Priestakaru, and he is a world-renowned researcher and also practitioner in the field of nutrition and kind of overall uh, health and wellness. One of the reasons why we wanted to bring him on today was we always like to give our customers a kind of sneak peek into what's coming down the pipeline, whether it's in technology or a field of study, and Val's certainly at the tip of that spear. So without further ado, Val, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it, Thomas. Uh, it looks like we got a great show for today. Yeah, and I know it's it's going to be unique. It'll be special and and a little bit different than what we've typically done as far as dealing specifically with coaches. But you have a very unique story, and I'd love it if you could just kind of unpack a little <clears throat> bit your history and how you got to where you're at now. Oh sure, um, I was always uh, just a little bit sickly growing up as a kid. Uh, I emigrated to the U.S. Uh, from Romania when I was six years old. And I just remember being a really picky eater and not really wanting to eat my vegetables when I was young. And uh, I was chronically constipated. I did not um, enjoy uh, going to school. I'd have to go to the restroom. And we had, you know, I had like issues with that, especially like, you know, like summer camp and different things. Um when I got a little older, I had a lot of acne. I was real skinny. I couldn't put on muscle. I always wish I were not as skinny as scrawny as some of the other boys growing up. And when I was about, <clears throat> I want to say 15, 16, I decided to experiment with different health and diet approaches. Uh, I tried uh, all sorts of things, you know, keto, carnivore, uh, vegetarian, vegan, uh, you know, I'd go from eating no eggs a day to eating 12 eggs a day. I tried it all. Eventually, I got into uh, health and wellness. I got a bachelor's and master's, and I almost finished a PhD in uh, nutrition, uh, but I never completed it. Instead, I went into business. I went into startup companies and just expanding my depth and breadth of knowledge. Uh, initially, I... Uh, was very interested in Barry Sears's work, which had to do with, uh, you know, Barry Sears is the, you know, it's the zone, uh, the zone diet guy. <clears throat> so he was into eicosanoids and, uh, you know, barrage oil and uh, fish oil, EPA, DHA, et cetera. Actually, it's more EPA. And uh, later on, I got interested. I saw a book at the bookstore, uh, Eat Right for Your Type. I got interested in uh, blood type science, and I actually, uh, as part of my master's degree, did a little bit of research, uh, clinical human trials, uh, 
also based on blood type and the effects of different types of uh, proteins, carbs, and fat uh, in an energy bar or nutrition bar setting on human beings. Uh, so that sort of began my quest for, you know, personalization of diet. Uh, obviously, one size fits all doesn't doesn't really uh, do justice to reality. And at the same time, there are some commonalities, like everybody should have some vitamin C, or you know what, maybe a little glucosamine's good for everyone, or maybe a little vitamin D, especially if you don't live in, you know, Florida or Belize or, you know, North Africa, maybe you should have some D. So in addition to all of these, <clears throat> there's also personalization of diet, which started long ago. Uh, it was actually uh, Dr. Diadamo's father, James Diadamo, who found out that uh, through his studies, it just seemed that people who were blood type A didn't get as much uh, stomach ulcers and people who were type O did. And then, of course, all the big Framington heart studies also started showing significant discrepancies between people who are type O and type A, meaning type A um, individuals just had more cancer and heart disease, basically. And so there was a lot of research behind why that is. How can something as innocuous as just some little thing that can complicate issues uh, in the blood transfusion space have to do with uh, health and diet. Uh, and it turns out they did because there are a lot of genes that sit right on top of the blood type gene, which sits on chromosome nine, I think it's nine Q32. And you have uh, a lot of uh, genes that are associated with uh, digestion, uh, ability to break down protein and fat, uh, brain hormone levels, catecholamines, uh, monoamine oxidase, dopamine beta hydroxylase, uh, a lot of these genes, they're called epistatic uh, relationships. So they're not directly connected, but somehow one affects the other. So epistatic relationships just means we don't, we're not really sure how, but th uh, the mechanism of action is, is a big question mark, but the connection is there. There's a correlation. So I got into blood type science back in the mid to late 90s. Then when genetic information came out uh, several years ago, I got deep into that. I basically taught myself to the point where I was teaching doctors and uh, nutritionists, other health practitioners, uh, chiropractors, naturopaths, uh, physician assistants, dietitians, how to use health and nutrition, nutrigenomic software and microbiome software in a clinical setting. So I did some of that for the last few years. I helped a, a few companies uh, design training software, videos, webinars, questionnaires, uh, including self-decode, including Datapunk, which has um, as its uh, one of its main products is Opus 23 and Opus 23 Explorer. Opus 23 Explorer uh, is available through uh, uh, Diagnostic Solutions Labs, <clears throat> which is... Uh, of course, the company that puts out GI Map, one of the top uh, microbiome testing uh, services in the world or in the U.S. And um, so I, I was been working with them since 2018 with uh, Diadamo, and also a little bit with uh, the Opus software. I am the, the the biggest updater of the software as far as like being one of the editors. I think I'm like 
42% of all uh, gene agent associations, SNPs, and uh, data I uploaded into the program, just completely revamped it. And I did some similar things with uh, Self-Decode, but they run on a different type of platform. They're more interested in a PRS, which is a polygenic risk score. PRS is just uh, next level. Instead of instead of looking at, for example, MTHFR, people like to look at you know one SNP, and that's a big one. So if you have both copies of the low activity version, um, then that just means uh, you need some more B vitamins, maybe eat some extra leafy greens, et cetera, et cetera, to increase methylation. So, uh, but there are other areas of health where you have, uh, you really want more than just one SNP. So you have like a, a risk score. <laughs> and the benefit of having a, per, uh, uh, having a polygenic risk score, which is PRS, is you have access to a lot more accuracy regarding all these risk scores. So if you have your genetic test, let's say it's a $90, $100 test available anywhere, right? You get 23andMe, you get Ancestry, self Code puts out one. There's, there's a, you know, probably a couple dozen places you can get it from. And you have this data set. And if you upload it into self Code, you get a pretty accurate uh, genetic risk score. And then what I do is uh, people want to do deep dives. So for my patients, I like to uh, do a deep dive using the Opus 23 software and also the Utopia software for the microbiome section. And uh, unfortunately, there's only two microbiome data sets that I can upload into the program so far. Uh, one is uh, Ombre Lab, which used to be called Thrive. And the other one is uh, a Biome Site. Biome Site's another uh, kind of a famous, uh, really good uh, platform for microbiome analysis. And so that's what I've been doing. I've been uh, teaching at uh, John Patrick University, teaching nutrigenomics, working with several clinics in the Midwest and some other areas. So as we promised, this wasn't your typical nutrition podcast. So we got so much to unpack there as you just went through that. I, I want to bring it back and, and I want to give a couple different scenarios. And I'd love for you to just kind of, you know, distill down some of that stuff that you just mentioned into the, when we talk about our genes, people think about the DNA, they think about the helix, but what people don't often understand is that not only do you have your DNA, but you have your genetics, you have your epigenetics, but the amount of power and control both diet and exercise and either concurrently or you know synergistically helping each other or regressing and causing problems. And, and why I say this is that I feel like a lot of our customers that we speak with and whether it's at Hawken or people that we know within the community, many athletes, there's a perception that because they play sports, they're in shape. And so they're in shape automatically means that they're healthy and they're being as optimal as they can be. But a lot of people actually have been so bad for so long that their average baseline is compromised. And what I mean by that is whether it's they've been deficient in vitamin D their entire life. I laughed as you you telling your story, the number of athletes that when I was a coach, I, I helped them find out they're actually lactose intolerant. And so they had been poisoning themselves or creating an inflama uh, inflammatory state, not knowingly, but it's just the way that they were, they were grew up and they didn't know any different. And how big of an impact it is, not only on the physiological side, but on the psychological side of just feeling better. So with some of the tools that you're talking about, 
I'm listening either as a practitioner or I'm working with a patient or I'm working with an individual, what is kind of, if you had to go from level one to level two to level three uh, of the applied um, nutrition strategies that you're talking about, what does that look like from an X's and O's standpoint of implementation? Oh, sure. So, um, so the different levels, uh, first of all, unless you get to level four or five with any practitioner, so for, for you or for any of your viewers, unless you get to level four or five, there's no reason to be with this practitioner because uh, that's already behind the times. It's like back in the old days, they thought, oh, wow, you could figure out blood pressure. You could measure uh, blood sugar levels. You know, these are like basic labs. That was revolutionary. And now we have new things that are revolutionary, like nutrigenomics, microbiome, epigenetic markers, et cetera, et cetera. So I would say um, level one would be standard labs and uh, an analysis of lifestyle, which would be essentially um, exercise, uh, relaxation, et cetera. So once people uh, got to a baseline of, of that, then we would go to level two. So level two is a little bit of nutrigenomics. So maybe they find out if they have the COMT variants or MTHFR, just some basic things that can help them improve. Like for example, uh, BCO is a really big vitamin A uh, gene that has two to three variants that if you have the wrong one, you, you just don't make a lot of vitamin A. So unless you're eating beef liver once a week, you're just going to have low vitamin A levels. And if you look at Africa, parts of Africa that have high vitamin A, everybody's happy. Parts of Africa that have low vitamin A, everyone's dying of measles, kids are sick, huge epidemics, problems. So because researchers found this out the last few decades, then there's been a push to just give everybody like, you know, one uh, occasional mega doses of vitamin A. But for people who are watching this, they're probably, uh, you know, in a developed country, in a first world country. So if they're able to benefit from this, you should most definitely be able to benefit from something where, you know, vitamin A supplementation will cost you maybe 15 bucks a year. We're not talking about a big financial expense here. So a lot of people, Maybe, let's say maybe half the population should actually be supplementing with something more than just beta carotene. Like we're talking retinal acetate, like actual, actual vitamin A. So that's just one example. Uh, some low level nutrigenomics. Let's call that level two. Level three would be a little bit higher level, more deep dive, looking into issues, looking to see if you have factor five. Are you having thrombosis issues? looking to see if you have the BRCA gene or some Lynch syndrome associated genes. Maybe you have a family history of cancer. Cancer is kind of a touchy subject, Thomas, because of the FDA. Our lovely FDA would like to make sure that no one says the wrong thing. So they go after everybody. So we don't want to go after too many people. Uh, so I, I, I always say I do not uh, treat any condition and anything that I say on this podcast should not be construed as medical advice, just general information. And you should discuss any idea that I say, if you're interested in it, with your healthcare practitioner before undergoing. <laughs> um, yeah. And I think that, you know, the hard part that I have with that, and I understand I have, you know, again, both professional and personal feelings towards with our medical community, it's very tough. It's very tough when, you know, medical, uh, you know, averages and norms 
that's a pretty slippery slope. And so when we start talking about living optimally or trying to feel better, the number of times I've had conversations, well, well, it's not bad enough. Well, so you're agreeing that it's not good. It's not bad. <laughs> feel good. Um, but you're within healthy. And I, and I think it is tough. And I, but I do respect, though, that, you know, we can't be going around and having people, you know, prey on people's fears that, you know, they have cancer or alternate treatments. But we also do need to have those frank conversations. And, and I, I was thinking as you were talking about mentioning keto, you know, I have done that. I, I love the work that uh, Dr. Volok has done. Um, I know it well. I also, you know, with uh, Coach Poliquin, you know, when he passed, some of the stuff that he was talking about was, you know, even looking at using uh, goat protein instead of just using the whey for someone with stomach right. acid or starting with scallops or starting with just things that are outside the norm just because they were easy or it's been passed down through folklore. And I think if you're going to be a practitioner, you know, it's okay if you choose not to do it, but don't say it wasn't available because speaking from someone who's either been injured or someone who's gone through any kind of medical thing, you want to know what's available. And the worst thing is finding out that there was this test that you could have run and, and find out that, you know, oh, wow, actually it wasn't a, it wasn't a thyroid condition. It was a, a TPO test that was, you know, $20 that found out that now I have, you know, Hashimoto's or I have some sort of autoimmune disease, but not even knowing that that test exists. I think we do as practitioners need to open the door of just what's possible. And as you're talking, you're talking about regular state, so we'll just call them steady state people. But how does this stuff work when you really get into training or on the other side? I would imagine if you were a surgeon or if you were a doctor that this would be part of your workup and then on the backside, part of your return to play because you are going to be dealing with someone who's in a you know suppressed state. What are those two paths like of the elite athlete that's in a constant dynamic training state and someone else who's coming back from injury? Um, those are, uh, of course, very, very uh, different pathways. The elite athlete is uh, more able to experiment with different uh, health and nutrition principles. Hey, I'll try this for a few weeks or that for a few weeks. But of course, when you're injured, you're coming back from a serious injury or you're trying to help with chronic disease. Uh, you can't really like just go experiment flippantly with different ideas. You're, you really want an answer now and you want something that is essentially precision medicine and precision health and wellness. And you can get a lot closer to the answer if you have a very key information, uh, key pieces of information like nutrigenomics, including deep dives into various areas, microbiome output. Let's say you have a really high uh, firmicutes or really low firmicutes. It's kind of interesting to know what you have so you can fix it. If you have hardly any uh, lactobacillus in your GI tract, well, that's something you want to know. Um, if you have a very low, uh, there's a um, bacteria called acromangia, really important, especially uh, very associated with health and longevity. If you have low levels of it, uh, you may need to increase butyrate producing bacteria, which helps increase acromangia. There's another one called F. prausnitzi, also fantastic butyrate producer and longevity bacteria. There are ways to increase and decrease all of the 250 to 300 different, uh, different types of bacteria you have in your gut. So a simple test, you know, once or twice a year can literally change people's lives. So um, for people who are very sick and recovering from illness, um, different lab tests, trying to figure out what the problem is, is very important. For athletes trying to reach the next level, 
um, it's also important to do some tests, but it's also important to do a little experimentation to figure out exactly what works best for you. <clears throat> but you're going to have a lot better results experimenting on yourself to try to get to the next level in your quest for being an elite athlete if you already have some baseline information. So what does that mean? Well, for example, let's say uh, let's say your bite uh, your gut microbiome information is telling me, you know, you do really well with uh, a higher fat diet. And let's say we look up your genetics and your genetics also say, yeah, high fat diet, you do really well, you respond just fine to fat. Well, then it's not really a big deal, right? We have a complete corroboration everywhere all across the board is saying eat more fat, but that's not usually the case. Usually it's like, you know, the gut will say uh, eat more protein and carbs and then the, the body will say genetically, well, you need more fat. So then what do you do? And this is where uh, precision health and wellness becomes a little bit of an art form because there's just simply not enough dots to connect the dots. Well, in the past, there weren't enough dots. Now there are enough dots, just people don't know what to do with them. And when I say dots, I mean uh, evidence, information, studies, findings. We have way too much info now. And uh, I've been able to assemble a small group of methodologies, uh, essentially multi-omics. So it's nutrigenomics, microbiomics, epigenetics, uh, glycomics, et cetera, to try to figure out what the root cause of issues are. And that ranges from chronic disease or for uh, performance athletes, because I have patients who uh, do either or or both, um, to try to figure out uh, what the root cause is, is probably the most important thing. Otherwise, you're just sort of covering up symptoms. And the essentially, a good point uh, to say is, if your practitioner or health coach if they're not interested in, uh, or they don't know too much about blood type science, uh, dopamine beta hydroxylase, Lewis secretor status, Lewis negative status, if they don't know anything about that, find another practitioner because that is super, super important. If, if um, and that leads me to uh, level four. So level one is basic stuff, right? Level two is some nutrigenomics. Level three is advanced nutrigenomics like deep dives by people who know what they're doing um, and also microbiome. Level four is advanced labs. That would be Dutch lab testing. Great Plains Laboratories has excellent uh, mycotox and GPL talks. These measure all sorts of different uh, environmental things that you may not even know you're exposed to. And I've tested dozens of people with these tests. And sometimes you have huge mycotoxin burdens. Like on my family, we had very, very significant uh, levels of uh, mycotoxins. And I had no, we had no idea. I tested myself. I tested my wife. I'm like, okay, well, we got to do something about it. So I got an ozone machine. You know, we cleared out this and that. We took, took apart an air conditioner, found out there was mold in it. And then everybody started feeling better. So it's extremely important uh, to do that. And that's level four. Level five is uh, light and sound therapy. Light and sound therapy, again, if your practitioner or doctor is just not really up to speed, find another practitioner because light and sound therapy works. 
sound therapy, different vibrations uh, actually can upregulate or downregulate many, many different genes in your body. And light therapy, also called phototherapy, there are over 5,500 studies in PubMed showing the efficacy of various different frequencies of light. And we know this because uh, researchers in the past few decades have uh, proven that your DNA actually absorbs and emits photons at various frequencies of light. So phototherapy works on the genetic level directly. And uh, of course, it also works like, you know, a UV, a UV lamp can literally kill bacteria on your skin and sunlight with UV rays can actually penetrate uh, into the skin and uh, kill bacteria, parasites, viruses, what have you in the bloodstream. So besides killing bad stuff, it also has effects of uh, increasing and decreasing uh, certain genes that are very important for health and fitness. And in fact, a lot of, uh, a lot of athletes are uh, using uh, phototherapy and uh, light therapy these days. Yeah, and I think the big problem becomes, though, is how much does this cost, right? And when <clears throat> are we able to do the basics well? So if I'm at a university, I can't obviously do this with everybody. So maybe we have a general intake that we do everyone, level one. We look for issues. And we've done this in the past where maybe it's elevated you know, A1C. Maybe it's a glucose tolerance test. Maybe it's a, a full panel. Maybe it's a cholesterol panel. Like wh whatever, whatever that kind of base is. And then from there, you kind of branch out. But I think without question the science is starting to emerge is that no longer is just the food that we eat proteins fats and carbs and and i speak from a point of you know having both as a practitioner and then even just personally kind of understanding and seeing how certain things feel and you read in the textbooks you know you know you, you can't do this you can't do that well says who and and nutrition i think has really had a hard time dealing with this art and science you know you want to be hard science and you want to wait 20 years for the research to come out you know that creatine monohydrate's great for the brain well guess what in the 20 years you were waiting you know that didn't that didn't really help the people you were working with and so i always kind of look at these things with caution but also i have done it you you mentioned carnivore i remember i'll never forget i, I as, a, as a dare during the pandemic one of my buddies was like yo you got to try carnivore 3 months just do it and I was like, man, that seems like an absolutely ridiculous idea, but you know, whatever. So I went in, told my endocrinologist, he nearly died, had a heart attack himself. We ran the blood panels and I just did it. And it was, you know, any kind of meat product. And I had, I, I allowed eggs. Um, and then it was just water and, and I did some uh, sodium as well. And I did it. And for, it was very interesting. There was different changes, a big cognitive impact, a big sleep impact, um, some other GI stuff. But I'll never forget when I come back in after 90 days, we reorder the blood panels. I, I, the endocrinologist looks me straight in the face. He goes, I know what you did, and it pains me to say this, but these are the best blood results that you've had in the entire <laughs> time here. But please go have a salad. And so and it was a cool kind of experiment. And I think people need to understand as you get older and then as you change uh, with training and all these different things, nutrition and your health state isn't a fixed thing. What you did 10 years ago is not you today. Your body's constantly remodeling and constantly turning over cells. And so you are a product of the past, but also your future going forward is going to be largely dictated by how you're able to handle the day-to-day -day stressors. And I think that's where food plays an incredible role. And, and even just knowing what kind of, whether you talked about beef, what was in the beef? What was in the soil? I read some recent report talking about the actual, you know, micronutrients coming out of the U.S. is, is really starting to decline just because of mass farming practices. And those are just things that we never even thought of. We just thought, oh, it's corn or, oh, it's soy or, oh, it's this. We never knew. And I, and I think that 
practitioners need to at least be pointed in the right direction to your, your thing. If you don't know about it, go research it. I, I'm never going to be an expert like yourself, but I might add you to my team or I might add someone in that field because we do know there's something there. And if you want to try to do what's best for the people you work with, you have to be cognizant of what's out there. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, going going back to uh, wheat and corn, wheat and corn are very interesting. Uh, they've been around for uh, many, many years. <clears throat> wheat and corn contain uh, food lectins, some of which can be inactivated with uh, processing. And in fact, uh, the Native Americans use lye to process corn. And that specific process tends to uh, significantly reduce the corn lectin. Corn lectin can be especially bad for some people because if you can't digest it properly, and I mean, it's going to get into you anyway. There's lots of studies, Pustai uh, and all showed 30 years ago conclusively, as soon as you eat any lectin, a little bit of it is going to end up in your circulation and it's within five, 10 minutes, you can detect it in the blood. So that whole theory is completely uh, knocked out of the sky that uh, your stomach is just an impenetrable vat of acid and all proteins are digested. That's just a lie. Um, maybe if you're like, you know, a very young, uh, virile man and uh, no health problems, yeah, you might have a little more stomach acid, but uh, the, that's the exception and not, and not the norm, right, as they say. Um, so with, uh, with wheat and corn, what's the problem? Well, with corn, uh, scientists use corn, lectin, uh, to do research in vitro on uh, insulin signaling because uh, corn lectin attaches to the insulin receptor really well. So that can that is like the first clue as to, you know, whether there's issues with corn lectin and corn ingesting too much corn and problems with uh, insulin and uh, blood sugar. The other one is wheat and uh, wheat lectin, also called WGA, wheat germagglutinin, is inactivated by certain processes, but some of it can still be around. And there are other proteins in wheat not associated with any specific lectin type activity and that would be a glu gluten uh, glutenins gliadins there's there's several there's like almost half a dozen uh, different proteins in wheat and wheat wasn't as big of a deal until this uh, very nice uh, japanese gentleman this scientist in the 60s developed a new type of wheat so red hard winter wheat was invented in the 60s in japan and it was short it's like a short stocky wheat and this variety had like 40% more protein. So this guy was like, hey, we're going to save the world of hunger. Uh, it turns out uh, wheat protein is not very good for you <laughs> because it's very um, hard to digest. It's not water soluble. It's more fat soluble, which makes it more easily able to evade uh, stomach acid and enzymes. So basically, it's just a not very nice type of protein and people are ingesting it because it's cheap. Big Ag makes the majority of their income on very, very cheap foods that last a long time. There's no way you can make big money on, you know, raw goat milk. As good as it may be for you, it's got a shelf life. And um, you can't like, you know, keep it in a storage for several months and, you know, 
sell it up and down on the stock exchange and the futures and all those markets. That's just not going to happen. Same thing with fresh vegetables. Uh, no one is going to make their trillion bucks on fresh veggies, but they can on things like wheat and corn and soybean oil, et cetera. So this is, a, this is an issue because these things are not very good for us. And on top of it all, you also have all the chemicals, pesticides, insecticides, fungicides, rodenticides. There's a million sides that are attacking. And in the past, it was like, oh, no, we did studies and FDA wildly approves this and that and everybody's happy. But for every FDA recall, you have to remember just a few years prior, FDA gives the seal of approval. And then what happened? Well, why did it go back? Remember, FDA approval is many, many standards of deviation of certainty. So when you uh, open up canned tuna, right, or you open up a can of uh, peas, uh, this has been heat treated, right? So it doesn't, you know, so stuff doesn't grow in it. And how many standard deviations, like what are the odds that there is one live bacteria that's going to end up ruining your canned food product and kill you? Well, it's several standard deviations, something like, I don't even remember, it's like 12 standard deviations. It's something really, really big. And that's the same thing with the FDA approval process. It's very, 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 very likely that it's safe for you. And then a few years later, boom, they ban it. And they say, oh, yeah, we're going to cancel this. Well, that doesn't compute. So you have to look beyond that. And now you're looking at uh, intentional, ignoring it, uh, up to malfeasance. Uh, I don't know why it happens. And I'm not going to get into the, uh, you know, uh, politics of it or uh, how, uh, how it came to be. It really, it doesn't matter. It's there. So we need to fix the problem. So people cheating on research studies and uh, people intentionally blocking certain research studies from coming out is an issue. And also, um, you know, funding of studies. Obviously, big ag's not going to fund study after study showing not to buy products from big ag. So you can't really trust science and literature, which is kind of a problem, right? Because that's the only way we're moving forward and we're trying to figure things out is by human beings sharing with other human beings uh, the results of what they saw. That's where you have you know, articles that come out in PLOS and The Lancet and Science and Nature and all these other journals. We're trying to improve uh, human health, the human condition, et cetera. And the majority of these big uh, scientific publications are compromised. This is a big problem. You have to take multiple, multiple steps back and people aren't going to, uh, not everyone's going to believe me. A few people will. They're going to be like, oh, I know what he's talking about. I remember, I remember when, uh, you know, uh, certain things happened with uh, a Lancet retraction during COVID. And I remember when certain things happened with, you know, DDT years ago and this and that. Uh, but it's probably like a paradigm shift. And eventually, I think everyone's just going to get it. And once everyone gets it, then they'll be able to implement real change and to have actual honesty in uh, the scientific, uh, basically uh, all science. So all science needs to re-examine what is it that they're trying to do. Because when you have all these studies showing that A is correct 
and B is actually correct. And then over time, over one decade, two decades, three decades, these little articles disproving slowly come out. So like, you know, uh, margarine's good for you, butter's bad for you. Then the next decade, yeah, that's still probably true. Then the next decade, eh, maybe they're even. And then the next decade, which is this decade, okay, uh, butter is not as bad. Definitely margarine's worse than butter. So did the laws of physics change? Did the laws of health and nutrition change? Obviously not. So uh, these are very, very deep issues, way beyond the scope of this um, brief podcast uh, that really need to be addressed. And from what I've seen and the people that I've talked to in the know, they are going to be addressed in the next decade. And we will see like real change and actual research and um, kind of like a, like, like a sort of shift in the health and wellness paradigm. Yeah, and I think one of the unique things about specifically as it relates to performance, we've dealt with this the entire existence of the industry. Well, you can't lift heavy or you can't do this or, oh, you can't perform there. And so, uh, you know, that whole finding the balance of science and practice and realizing, too, that there's some anecdotal evidence. I, I think back to, again, Coach Pollockman talking about cluster training for strength, and then it wasn't until either 2006 or 2013, there was a Brazilian study that kind of identified and he said, if I had waited for that to go through, and I think there's some guardrails you have to have in place of when you run a program and or nutrition, but like I can tell you right now, I can think of, I had athletes that, you know, documented their performance, saw how they felt, and they had much higher protein levels than what I'd ever recommend. But for them, they said, when I didn't have these levels, I, I felt beat up, I couldn't come back from it. And that was unique to them. And I think people specifically as we're talking about performance and, and nutrition, and, and I put that under the whole um, umbrella of performance, the amount of individualization that we can get, not only as a, as a steady state, but as a dynamic day-to-day in and out um, individualization is mind-blowing. We'll take someone, jump on the force plates, they'll get an output of 30 inches. Well, at the end of a practice, they still jump 30 inches, but the, the strategy was completely different. They shortened up their descent or they landed, you know, um, left, right, or they, you know, had a specific corkscrew type mechanism on the way up, but they didn't on the way down. So these strategies, so these underpinnings, both at the genetic level, the molecular level, and the neurological level, we're starting to now see that at the, with the practitioners on a level of fidelity that we've never seen before. And I think that, you know, definitely sciences, you know, there's been a real test in the last few years of, again, what do I believe? Because again, as a regular person, you're trusting that science is pushing towards truth and knowledge for the betterment of society. And I think there's some question right now, you know, of, okay, well, the, the study says this, but I can tell you in the weight room, or I can tell you, you know, in the, in the classroom that that doesn't add up. I always laugh with the, well, that's what the textbooks say. Well, they, they shouldn't be mutually <laughs> exclusive. They should run parallel and at least give you insight, like a flashlight to the future, but you know, it shouldn't just be completely all over the place. And I just, um, I do hope it gets cleaned up, but I also know for the practitioners that are listening, know that there there's a huge opportunity to make a difference now. Gone are the days of just going to the dining hall, you know, scoop up some slop and, and realize. I mean, we pushed early on um, when I arrived at Yale, we actually were a world uh, research center in olive oil. And so what is the power of high powered olive oil? But then there's a counterfeit oil um, market. And so they have to come in and get certified and understand what the chemical process is. It's a whole big deal. But our dining hall had really good olive oil. And so what can those little itty bitty things do both on a short term, but in a long term impact on the athlete? I think it's incredible. So, I mean, it's certainly something to, to, to not only look at, but consider incorporating into your practice. Oh, sure. Absolutely. And uh, I told you that I would try to... Uh try to have some ideas 
especially for the uh, performance-oriented um, um, folks that are listening. So <clears throat> there are three little tidbits of information that uh, might be of use that I thought just off the top of my head. One of them is uh, mitochondrial function. Um, one is uh, bone density, of course, you know, reducing risk of fractures, especially important, you know, uh, football, uh, basketball, you know, there's all, a lot of different sports that are extreme sports that uh, really impact it. And also pre-training pre workouts and regimens based on uh, genetic levels of dopamine and adrenaline. So let's start with the first one. So for mitochondrial uh, function, mitochondria, of course, uh, it's not burning, it's burning fat. So if you have, um, let's say a little bit compromised mitochondrial function, which you can do with any uh, Opus 23 certified practitioner, of which I've trained several, and uh, there's like two, 300, maybe 400 worldwide, uh, they would have to do a mitochondrial function test for you. So that involves several genes. Uh, one of the big ones is called NDU-FS7. And that one uh, is a gene involved in improving mitochondria activity, and it's upregulated by coenzyme Q10, which uh, a lot of people use CoQ10 for uh, improving health, well-being, brain performance, because your brain is also needing the mitochondria to be functioning well. And that's like one of the things for improving cognition and later in life. And there's like some evidence for it to help with Alzheimer's, et cetera, et cetera. So mitochondrial genomics is probably a big one. Uh, if you do have compromised mitochondrial genomics and you're in a super high performance uh, type of sport, like for example, wrestling or mixed martial arts, you would need more energy. And if you have way too many carbs, well, that might not be good for you, right? Especially if you're carb sensitive. If you have too much protein, let's say you're protein sensitive, or as you said, some people feel really good on high protein diets, but I'd say maybe a third of athletes maybe should not be doing, you know, 200 grams of protein a day. Maybe just like, you know, maybe a buck 20 or something. Depends on many factors. And I would even but, go so far too on that yeah. though, just not to cut you off that um, oh, go ahead. I, I had athletes that would train on a regular diet. So they would call their train diet. And this was specifically looking at like heavyweight crew and they would go vegetarian two weeks out, but shatter all time records. And these are Olympic. And I said, that doesn't make sense. Like, why would you, whatever. And just again, going back to the training logs coach, yeah. coach for me, if I use a regular diet and I don't know if it was an acidity thing, I don't know if it was just a change. I don't know if, you know, for the six months or eight months that they were training with a certain type of background, that massive change two weeks prior to the event. But then we're talking about erg times, you know, that are world-class top 1% and consistently being able to do it. But that AB testing had already occurred where this is what works for me. And so I'm right there with you is that you have your performance diet, you have your training diet, but you also have your individualization as you find out what works best for you. So certainly we have general guidelines, but that doesn't mean it's a good fit. And that fit could also change um, throughout time. Right. Yeah. Very, very good point. And uh, it's important to, uh, it's important to know that, that no, no matter how much uh, research and labs that you do, you also have to figure out what works a little bit on your own. Um, 
the mitochondrial one to, to finish with that, if you have high mitochondrial function, you can get by with a higher fat diet, especially if you also have, if you score high on uh, fat tolerance. So that means, you know, you're, uh, you're really good at moving fat molecules around your body, et cetera, et cetera. That works really well. And for some athletes, something like even 70% fat has been shown to have excellent results if you can handle it. If you can't handle it, it won't work. Um, the next one is bone density. <clears throat> there are ways to test uh, bone health. The best uh, test, of course, is using uh, the self-decode uh, bone health uh, PRS model to see if how high you score. If you score really high on the bone health issues, then you're probably going to want to increase your bone density. And the way to increase that is not just take more calcium in, because it's not all calcium. You need to have a blood test of calcium. Is your calcium level already high? If it is kind of high, and then genetically you have high calcium levels, which is very easy to test for, then calcium isn't the issue. It's probably vitamin D, vitamin K, other things. If you are not a teenager, then you could also take strontium. Strontium increases bone density significantly. There was a study done after six months of uh, an elderly population taking strontium, it reduced hip fractures by 29%. That's huge. Everybody who doesn't have like significant, significant like advanced heart disease who is over the age of 60, who has any of these genetic risks, should be on a little bit of strontium, and yet they're not. And uh, it, I don't know why they're not, but they should be. Um, there is absolutely no reason why athletes shouldn't experiment with strontium, especially ones with one. If they're basically any athlete who is not a type B or type O Lewis secretor, which you could test for with the Opus 23 database on, with any certified trainer who does Opus 23. Um, if you're not an O or B secretor, you're going to have a little bit lower levels of bone density. And if you are not one of those and you test for high issues with bone health, then that's like a no-brainer. You're going to have to maximize all of the inputs that help uh, bone strength, which includes vitamin D, includes vitamin K, includes vitamin A, includes calcium, magnesium, phosphorus, et cetera, but also includes some strontium. So that's, that's a really big factor. And um, the third one is pre-workout. This is a really cool one. So with pre-workout issues, monoamine oxidase is kind of a big deal with pre-workout. What's monoamine oxidase? Monoamine oxidase, uh, also called MAOA and MAOB, Enzymes in the body that break down dopamine, but also break down adrenaline. So that's the biggest factor. So if you break down adrenaline easily, <clears throat> then it might not be a big deal to get yourself uh, riled up before an event, let's say a football game, or let's say a wrestling meet or something, you know, some big competitive event. You know, let's say you do the mile run, right? You're a runner. Um, if you have high MAOA levels, you can break down adrenaline quickly. If you have low MAOA levels, it takes you a long time 
to increase your, a little longer to increase your adrenaline, but then it stays with you longer. So people who get mad real quick and then, and then they're fine after a few minutes, that is not someone with low MAOA levels. People who are blood type O and AB tend to have um, higher levels of adrenaline anyway, because uh, DBH uh, does some similar things that MAO does. That's dopamine beta hydroxylase, and that sits on the blood type gene. That's why blood type personality uh, research and uh, you know psychology looks at blood type. It's because of that. It's because you have uh, uh, increased uh, ability for people who are type A and B to clear certain catecholamines. So what does that mean as far as someone who is ready to go into an event? Well, let's take a look at it. So if you could burn off adrenaline quickly, would you want to uh, get really riled up and to do a lot of uh, pre-performance pre, uh, workout? Or do you wanna kind of take it easy and then uh, uh, wait till the actual meet or fight or game uh, to get, you know, to get yourself uh, pumped up? So these are very good questions. <laughs> uh, basically, um, I think for people who have low MAOA activity, I think it's a very good idea to get yourself, uh, to get yourself, uh, you know, to, to start working out, loosening up a long time before. But for people who have high MAO activity, you don't want to burn all your adrenaline. So you want to kind of save yourself for the actual event. So you want to take it easy and not do like a three hour warm up or two hour warm up. Maybe just do like a, you know, 30 to 45 minute warm up. Yeah, I'm laughing because I'm thinking of the athletes that would put on the headphones and kind of get quiet. And it was kind of like you could, you know, hear the drum beat just kind of building. Then you had other people that just had to get themselves so amped to stay up. But again, other people it just everybody has their own way to get into the zone. So I, I do buy that. And I also know that, um, again, I can't remember whether I first saw it from from Coach Thibodeau or from Coach Poliquin, but the Braverman test. So started looking at understanding the neurotyping and understanding, hey, this person needs variety, this person needs stability. And so you you hear it. I mean, that's pretty that's pretty far out there that you would take a survey and kind of get some sort of uh, insight into the type of training. But I'll tell you from looking at our training logs, and we're talking about gigs and gigs of CSV files of training logs, <laughs> people do fall into the consistency over time group. So I think about the smallest, the five by five group. I think about, I had an individual who was an outstanding player, but every workout had to be different. High speed, lots of angles, lots of challenges, and then other people would get so frustrated that they're learning these new movements. They wanted to have three or four weeks of exposure to it to kind of understand that patterning. So I do buy a lot of that stuff, but it's just, um, it's crazy to think how far we've come in the last 10, 20 years where we just put it up on a whiteboard and you know essentially have a structured gym class where you pick a weight and just go for it. We can really, really start to make tremendous impacts in both our gross biomotor, but also too in the psychological realm of you know being able to call on performance in a high demand situation. That was really, uh, I'm really glad you mentioned that, Thomas. This is, uh, this is a really, really important factor. Uh, it, it's probably moderately important for elite athletes, but it's probably the most important for general population of people who are um, 
not really good with compliance, with actually getting on an exercise regimen. Oh, I was going to work out five days a week, but it turned into twice a month kind of a thing. And here, here is the, uh, here's the deal, as they say. Um, when you, when you have uh, high dopamine levels, you're able to focus better. And of course, higher dopamine levels are associated with reduced risk of ADHD. When you have higher dopamine, you can uh, ride a Stairmaster for an hour, or you could do some routine more without getting bored. Uh, people who get bored easily have higher ADHD levels, lower dopamine levels, and they would probably benefit from making exercise extra fun and exciting. And people with uh, already very high dopamine levels, they don't need it to be extra exciting. Give you an example, <clears throat> uh, Donald Cowboy Cerrone, right? He's a big MMA fighter. Uh, he gets really bored. So he likes to jump out of airplanes. Uh, he likes to uh, ride bulls. He does all these things that are like, you get to the brink of death. <laughs> this guy has probably fairly low dopamine levels. So he needs to get his dopamine levels up with excitement. And uh, as uh, as Austin Powers say, for shits and giggles, right? So um, what can, uh, so it's important to be able to understand that when designing any type of uh, regimen, either for an elite athlete or just a normal athlete or just the average person. If you have, and here are the way to test for that. The way you test for it is find a practitioner who does nutrigenomics and find out if they have genetically low dopamine. And uh, probably the best platform for determining those are um, Opus 23 and Self Decode. I've, I've worked with both companies and that's what I do in my uh, clinical practice. I go right to the right to the baseline and be like, okay, let's see if you're high dopamine, low dopamine. I happen to be um, like a medium dopamine, but I have very high MAOA levels. So I can get mad like, you know, in five seconds, but then, you know, 10 minutes later, I'll be like, oh, okay, I'm fine. Whereas, you know, my wife will get upset over something and, she, and several hours later, she's still like upset about it. I'm like, and she's never going to forget it. And she's never going to forget it. Yeah. <laughs> She'll never forget it. I'm like, Hey, calm down. She's like, I can't, I'm angry. So, um, she has low dopamine level. Uh, she has low MAOA activity and I have high MAOA activity. So there are ways to increase MAOA levels if they're too low. And that's, uh, taking a little bit of lithium orotate taking a little bit of ashwagandha, vitamin D, and certain B vitamins. That increases MAOA. If you want to decrease MAOA, uh, curcumin, resveratrol, and a few other compounds can decrease it. So, And also, exercise burns off adrenaline too. So that also helps a lot. So, if, so people who have um, a lower MAOA levels are people who are blood type O and AB. So they would probably do well to try to burn off extra adrenaline or if you're angry with a little extra exercise. Uh, whereas uh, it's not as crucial if you're type uh, A or B. So for athletes, as we discussed, that, that can be kind of a big deal um, as far as like when to start 
psyching yourself out for the event that you're training for, uh, et cetera. Well, how would you respond though when we talk about athletes that are part of a team where the culture is you wake up at 6 a.m.? That's not an ideal state for maybe most college students or you have to travel with a different time zone. How do you handle, and we'll just call all of those as kind of suboptimal training environments. What are some of the strategies? Because again, you don't get to choose you know, when the game's going to be on Saturday, if it's at noon or <laughs> seven, you need to, by definition, with the high performance, be able to call it on. How do you handle that if, you know, you you need to go in and do your, your little routine there, but you just don't have time to do it? Oh, sure. So there's actually a way to test for risk of daytime sleepiness. And uh, when people have like insomnia and all these issues, uh, there are genetics based recommendations uh, that come out of that. So for some people, if you there's a gene called uh, PER2, PER2, that's associated with circadian rhythm, and it's linked to insomnia. So if you have the PER2 variant, you're actually going to uh, do worse. Like, let's say you're, uh, let's say, uh, you know, you just uh, signed up uh, for the NBA, you, uh, you're number 18 in the draft, and now you're uh, you're playing for uh, the Utah Jazz, right? And you're flying all over the place. <laughs> so it's going to be an issue. If you have this PER variant, you're going to have more issues if you don't get bright light in the morning and day and then put on some blue blocker glasses in the evening and you'll feel a heck of a lot better. Uh, people who don't do well with too much caffeine, it will also ruin sleep. So we look at uh, caffeine genetics. There's about uh, three or four different uh, SNPs in the human genome that are very correlated with uh, how people break down caffeine, the CYP1A2 gene. There's like a gene called uh, MTNR1. All of these affect caffeine processing. But if you happen to have the low processing one and you don't realize it and you're 23 years old and you're at a big athlete and your buddy's like, hey, here, have, here, have, some, uh, have some of this great drink. Here, have some of this energy drink. And then you don't get enough sleep, then your performance suffers. So that is a huge way to improve performance by improving sleep in those with the who are affected by insomnia issues the most. Um, another one is valerian. Some people can use valerian and it works really well. Other people, it will mess them up. Uh, people with low MAOA activity will not want to use valerian, basically. Um, there's other issues uh, that can be treated. Uh, melatonin is really good to improve sleep for some people. Others, it doesn't work at all. But there's something else about melatonin. Melatonin is an inflammasome inhibitor. And what does that mean? Well, the inflammasome is... Uh, basically like a group of proteins that starts the inflammation process to essentially kill stuff. And if you have something like an inflammasome inhibitor, like melatonin, it can uh, improve the healing process, reduce inflammation, help you from, you know, training day after day, intense training, right? Some of these athletes, they're not exercising an hour a day, right? It's multiple, multiple hours. And taking melatonin, so long as it doesn't cause like weird dreams, like, you know, you wake up and there's like deer in your living room and you're freaking out, then melatonin would be great for you. Uh, up to, I would say up to 10 grams uh, 
at night before sleep, um, as long as it doesn't make you super groggy in the morning, then that's a good dose. Super groggy or you're seeing things or having really vivid dreams that it's just too much because I have some patients like that. Uh, melatonin is fantastic for that. Another one um, is uh, tryptophan and 5-HTP. That also worked really well. It also works really well for people who have uh, mutations. They can't make enough 5-HTP, and that would be the TPH1 and TPH2 genes. Um, I, th I don't remember what it's called. Tryptophan hydroxylase, I think. It turns uh, tryptophan into 5-HTP, and then the next step is, of course, serotonin. So if you have low serotonin levels, that really helps you. However, if you're involved in a sport where you have to have like a lot of energy, a lot of anger, you might not want a lot of serotonin because then that'll just make you like really relaxed. Like, let's say you're about to fight Mike Tyson. Do you want to be like all nice and happy and, hey, Mike, let's go have a beer. And he's like, no, I think I'm just going to try to break your face. <laughs> so maybe you don't want, you know, right before the fight to have some uh, extra, um, you know, tryptophan or 5-HTP or any of those that, uh, you know, like Bacopa Maneri or any of those that increase um, serotonin production. Um, so yeah, uh, sleep's a big deal. Uh, recovery is a big deal. Um, there's a lot of uh, ways to genetically improve uh, elite, elite athletic performance. Yeah, and I think that if you were to break it up into different phases, it was a novel concept to take additional protein after a workout. And the research is out that that definitely, you know, makes a difference. Still have to have a yeah. good workout, but you can augment that kind of recovery. And then there was a big push for pre-workout and that got completely out of hand. And we started <laughs> seeing, you know, people making pre-workout in their bathtubs and grams of caffeine. <laughs> 200 was good. So, you know, 500 and then it was, it gotten, it was never one scoop. Let's just be honest for the record. Nobody ever just did one scoop. Um, and so that kind of played out. And I think now where we're kind of settling is that there's a big push now into the science of recovery, both from physiological uh, stuff, from just active recovery workouts to massage, to scraping, to, um, you know, even we've, we've seen some of the stuff with the hyperbaric um, oxygen chambers and what can that do and being able to apply that. And I think I mentioned this on another podcast, we know we all know about Cellier's principle, the stress, the alarm, you know, and then the pressure, the supercompensation. Everybody spent all this time figuring out the programming to create the alarm. I find more and more practitioners now focusing on creating the best trampoline for some of these alarm states. As you mentioned, it's not a one-hour you know Zumba class. You're you're hitting, you're striking. Then you're also the stress of going to film and then going to class and then going into other aspects of life. In our warfighter community or in law enforcement, some of the hardest stuff is when they come home, when they're away from their team and unit. So it's no longer just stress at the moment of training or contact. It's the around the clock. And so developing and having, and I would even go so far as to say, if you're serious about performance, you must have a paradigm in place to create the biggest trampoline possible for your athletes. So whether it's sleep, whether it's nutrition, whether it's testing or follow-up, the idea that someone's going to go way above their homeostatic norms and be able to recover just by not doing stuff, like taking it easy, uh, is crazy. And so when we go into these recovery things, what are some of the things that you've seen? <clears throat> again, it, I'm sure, because again, it can run the gamut. 
some of the basic, you know, from a workout standpoint, things people should be thinking about. But I also do, because as we approach here to the fall and into winter, um, where a lot of the, the fall athletes will go in and have surgery, ACLs, labrums, things like that, um, Achilles, that what are some of the post-surgical things that need to be considered to make the biggest trampoline possible? Oh, sure. Um, well, the one that you mentioned, the first one that comes to mind is the one that you said HBOT. So hyperbaric oxygen therapy is really useful. It increases uh, with very high pressure and very high oxygen levels, um, the amount of oxygen in your blood and amount of oxygen in your body available for reactions. And what that does, uh, besides killing bad stuff, like you know certain pathogenic bacteria, et cetera, it also increases a healing ability. This is a big deal for sports where there are concussions. And right now, there's a lot of research for it, but it, not a huge amount is being done. Uh, I would say at the most, 10 years from now, every MMA event is going to have an HBOT available for anyone who gets a concussion after, after any type of, uh, like if a doctor uh, diagnoses even a mild concussion. Anyone who's knocked out, without a doubt. There doesn't need to be any analysis. Boom, just send them into the HBOT for an hour, and then the next day, another HBOT hour, and then, you know, maybe two, three days later, another session. That significantly reduces long-term issues, especially that, you know, boxers and kickboxers face as they get older and they age. Uh, these issues, uh, Parkinson's-like problems, all of those improve. If you use HBOTs after concussions, whether it's MMA, football, basketball, anything. Less, I'm going to say uh, somewhere less than 10 years from now, you're going to see that everywhere. But if it's not available at your college or institution or where you're at, uh, maybe you need to go talk to someone, figure out where the nearest HBOT is. Because uh, I do know most of those are reserved for the burn units. So even yes. at the institution that we were at, the burn, you have to find someone who has it. You have to find a connection to the burn unit. Um, and it's a pretty, it's a pretty regimented and structured um, resource usually for the universities or for the hospital. Um, <clears throat> to the point that you're talking about, I, I do think that, especially with what we know about the brain, football programs are gonna have to have this. They're, they're yeah. gonna have to do it. Otherwise, again, you start running into this, you know, quality of care problem where you knew this was an issue. You, you knew there were other alternatives and you just, basically sat out of practice isn't going to cut it. We had actually, I don't know if you know, Dr. Dodek was on last year talking about Cinequil and some of the research that they're doing at the Mayo Clinic of providing basically anti-inflammatory stuff, whereas he talked about keeping it from, you know, raging into a forest fire, keeping it at a campfire level. And I think that, again, as a parent, this is super interesting for, wow, I didn't even know that was a thing. I didn't know that right. was possible. So if I'm considering sending my kid to some college, if I'm a parent listening, what is your concussion protocol? And I know all concussions are different, but in general, what is your strategy or paradigm to handle these kind of injuries? Right. Yeah, that's that's very very uh, very good question. Um, so it's going to have to it's going to have to contain some type of oxygen therapy, like an HBOT. Other uh, things that you could do is uh, anti-inflammatory and pro-healing. Um, herbs and supplements that would include alpha lipoic acid, CoQ10, carnitine, acetyl carnitine, 
there's about five or 10 different really good supplements that can help improve uh, brain function, mitochondrial function, you know, things like melatonin to reduce the inflammasome, to reduce inflammation in general. Uh, some people use pine bark extract for improved, uh, improved mental, uh, mental conditioning, et cetera. Um, another thing that uh, is going to be very useful <clears throat> in the future, uh, and I've said this before, the future of health and wellness is undoubtedly going to include a lot of light and sound therapy. So uh, there's been some research that um, 432 hertz is like a, a very healing type of frequency. And uh, there's been, you know, different types of studies and animal studies, this and that, uh, trying to document this. Uh, as far as light therapy, there are different uh, companies putting out like, I'm sure you've heard of infrared saunas, and I'm sure you've heard of uh, narrow band UV phototherapy. But there are also uh, companies that use uh, phototherapy patches, companies that have uh, like an actual gadget that you blow hot air and certain, uh, whether it's terahertz, microwaves, uh, infrared, near infrared, certain visible light onto your skin and it penetrates your skin. Uh, those like really work. <laughs> and you'd also be alluding to something like the Nova bed. So the Nova Thor bed, the cold lasers, that kind of in the realm that you're thinking? Absolutely. That's one of them. There's about, there's probably a dozen uh, different uh, pretty well-studied technologies for uh, phototherapy uh, and also sound therapy. And it's going to be a part of the future. So might as well, might as well uh, hop on the bandwagon before you get left behind. <laughs> yeah, well, but now let's play devil's advocate and say maybe I'm an administrator and I'm looking at this and it's a little blinky red light. I don't know what hurts it is and, and the potential for that for fraud for knockoffs or intimidate uh, um, uh, imitation stuff, I, I think is what makes everybody nervous. Um, yes, you can absolutely. On, you can go on Amazon and go buy a blinky red light, but I'll never forget that we <laughs> we had a place near New Haven where they had HBOT, they had Novabed, they had you know even just some of the Normatex, and and they had all different kind of re recovery modalities. And I remember pushing that pretty hard, and it was like, well, do we need to do it? Do we have to do it? And again, championships are won within one to two percent. And so if we're talking about what's right, what's just, what's, what's high performance, those are all a little bit different. So I always kind of edged on the kind of um, let's push it. And again, as long as it's not going to hurt anyone, when we looked at some of the stuff coming out of the Nova bed, and I, and I believe that the first person we had really seen use that was the UFC had the, uh, the Performance Institute, Duncan French and his colleagues, you know, they mm -hmm. were making that as part of the standard recovery process um, throughout that and making it available in training camps. So again, as you kind of have these layers of practical validity, I think you can definitely open up the doors and say, and again, at the end of the day, if it doesn't work, I know some people love cryo and some people hated it. Some people like, like it, but that's light bed, but that's probably what you were alluding to is that there's a genetic predisposition and then there's a social acceptance of actually, okay, I'm gonna invest an hour in this thing or float tanks. You know, there was some incredible research done looking at the sensory deprivation tanks and for the right people that their minds are going a million miles an hour, that, you know, shifting down into first let a lot of other processes that wouldn't have necessarily been able to compete um, for those biological functions, mm. allow it to do its work. Uh, not to mention some of the studies out of Ohio State showing that, you know, testosterone going up 30 percent, 
you know, post, you know, post exercise in a float. And so if you're listening to this and it's January, February in football, <laughs> you need someone to gain, uh, gain muscle. That's an easy non-androgenic way to make a big impact on the endocrine system. Um, and you're already doing the hard work. You just don't have a good enough trampoline. Right. Right. Yeah. Very good points. Um, I would say for, uh, for cold exposure after workout, uh, if you, if you have genetically high cortisol levels, you probably don't want to do like the full amount of it. You probably want to do maybe just a little bit, maybe 10, 15 minutes. If you don't like it, maybe not do it at all. Just take some uh, natural anti-inflammatories and not even do the very cold therapy. What really cold therapy does is it jacks up cortisol levels. Of course, it also helps reduce inflammation, right? Because you're, you're going into an ice bath. Uh, but it really increases cortisol. So if you're in a sport that is a very, very tough sport, like wrestling, MMA, football, et cetera, basketball, and uh, you also have genetically higher cortisol levels, you probably don't want to do a lot of cryotherapy because cryotherapy will increase further cortisol levels. So you have to get tested to see if you have genetically... Uh, are on it, or maybe you just know you're like, oh yeah, it works great for me. So there's no there's no issue with it. Um, for people who it works well for, if you test that you have high cortisol levels, you document it with uh, you know salivary cortisol test. Um, I would probably add certain things to uh, mitigate this high cortisol because too much cortisol will. Uh, will not make you achieve your athletic elite athlete goals. So I would do like extra meditation, relaxation, nice soft music. Um, I would probably not eat a really, really, really high protein diet, maybe cut back slightly. Of course, you, you definitely need, you know, anywhere, whatever, 30 to 50 grams after the, after a big workout or event, just to, just to replenish but as far as like total protein per day, that's going to increase cortisol again. Um, listening to hard rock and heavy metal, maybe just tone that down a little bit. Uh, but all these, uh, all these things can uh, be found out through uh, a genetic microbiome uh, and lab testing. So it's it's so easy to to custom tailor and personalize um, workout plans and. Uh, you know, uh, pre-event plans uh, to optimize results. The cortisol thing is a big one. If you have low cortisol and you're not really into the cryo thing, maybe get into the cryo thing a little bit or maybe uh, do certain things to raise cortisol levels, which would be the opposite of what it would be the other way. People who have uh, cortisol levels that are too high are generally people with NR... Uh, NRC31, it's a gene. They have genetic variants in it. And they're usually people who are blood type A or B. People who are type A or B have higher cortisol levels. Yeah, and I think that when people listen to this, there's a trap, especially when we talk about in a university or a team setting, just to do this very mechanized, everyone's getting in the tubs, everybody's getting in the sauna, everybody's getting into whatever the modality is. And again, for some people it will work, some it won't do anything and some it'll actually make things worse, but really developing a strategy. What is your entry level assessment? The one that you're going to invest with everybody 
and you know it's a detection pipeline and then you find that there's issues or in training if someone brings something up then they will do these subtests but i just don't know if a lot of places are sitting down with the various shareholders and making that kind of roadmap of standard operating procedures and we're not going to freak out we're not going to stop we're not going to throw everything out the window but we're going to really sit down and come up with a way to strategize and use these things and i can't tell you know when i have a, a client will come talk to me well what's the best I, if you're looking for a, a one size fits all, I'm not, I'm not your, your coach to work with. But what I can tell you is you do have a best, but we're going to need to do a little bit of trial and error. We're going to need to use a little bit of hard sciences. But for sure, if you don't have a recovery plan and protocol, you're missing out. And so that's usually kind of that starting point as we go forward. And, and it's exciting because you've got to do the basics well. It's exciting to know that there's some new stuff on the frontier that are going to make a big difference. But, you know, you've talked a lot of things about to us today about a lot of things. What's the one thing right now? Because um, I'm sure listeners right now are going, oh, my God, what's this guy talking about? That's insane. What's the one thing if you had to pick one thing right now that blows your mind that you're like, no way, that almost seems, you know, space station level type uh, <clears throat> Um, insight or, or advancement, what would be the one thing right now that has you just really has your mind going? The one thing right now that has my mind going, it's probably, it's probably this thing right here. Um, I've been working with, uh, I've been using this uh, LifeWave phototherapy patches. I don't know if you've ever seen these things, but they're little patches and you put them on your skin for like six to 12 hours a day and they have like a little sticky thing and it reflects light back. And there's like about 130 odd uh, patents and uh, over a hundred uh, clinical trials. So that's one thing that I encourage uh, listeners to do. If there's some modality that people uh, recommend to you or swear by, uh, look up some of the actual research studies. And see, and see if there's actual evidence. And is it just like one little study or is it like study after study? Hey, th there's something here. Maybe we should look into it. And for everyone listening, because I know you're probably dying because as I'm, I'm lucky enough to be able to see um, what he was showing, uh, we'll make sure that there's a link to the different uh, products that we talked about. So that way you guys can go see the pictures yourselves. But I just want to let everyone know because I'm sure they're dying to ask more questions about that. Because um, if you're impressed, that means we're going to be impressed as well. But keep going on. You talked about the patents just on that specific device. What does it do? Because what it looks like just from <laughs> my end is a bunch of little sticky reflectors that uh, you might use at the, the the gun range. They're these little. Oh, sure. So uh, what it does is uh, this guy, David Schmidt, um, uh, was an inventor and he was uh, contracted by, uh, I guess, the Department of the Navy to create um uh, something without amphetamines or caffeine that Navy SEALs can use on uh, special missions where it's like, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 hours, they have to be awake and aware. And uh, it was an energy patch he developed. And it's basically uh, certain crystals that uh, reflect light. Uh, I wouldn't say reflect. It's more like uh, absorption and emission. So anytime anything absorbs light, it would be at a higher frequency, right? And then a lower uh, a lower frequency is when it uh, is the frequency that it would be emitted. So these uh, these these uh, mashed up organic crystals absorb light from your body because your body constantly emits uh, light. We just can't see it uh, because it's in the uh, infrared and near infrared 
frequency. Um, but, you know, that's how they catch uh, criminals at night, right? They put on the near-infrared goggles and they see exactly where the guy is running through the forest because everybody emits photons in the infrared and near-infrared range. So the patches just um, simply are powered by your own body's heat photons. And then they heat up and then they emit very, very specific frequencies of light back into the body. Um, the research is showing up to about six inches. So it goes deep into the body and it uh, goes through the blood and it increases certain peptides to increase a stem cell regeneration. Uh, I think it's called a GKU copper peptide. And there's several other peptides too, just depending on the wavelength that it increases. Um, uh, a lot of athletes are using it now. There's several Olympic athletes, like winning Olympic athletes using uh, phototherapy patches. And um, like I said, there's like over 100 clinical trials. And if you look at phototherapy in PubMed, there's like, there's like over 5,000 studies. So it's like really, you know, there's a lot of interest. And like I said, the future of health and wellness, it's going to include, without a doubt, sound therapy and uh, light therapy. Well, that is absolutely awesome. And again, I can't wait to get my hands on some of that because that looks exciting. <laughs> um, now, listen, uh, our customers often like to reach out and our listeners like to reach out. If they want to get a hold of you, what's the best way um, for them to reach out to you as far as um, being able to connect with further questions? Oh, sure. Um, the best way is just to uh, email me, uh, geneticwellbeing at gmail.com. That's perfect. And again, I could talk to you for hours and we'll have to get you back on for another episode, but this has been great. And again, every time we have a guest come on, our goal is to make sure that not only do we talk about kind of some of the topics and trends that are going on in the field, but actually walk away with tangible things that you can do to make an impact in the lives of the individuals you serve. And today you, you gave so many nuggets, um, so many different insights that I think that as a practitioner, it's going to allow me to even reflect on kind of what can I do better and what can I learn more about? Because we never stop learning and we always need to be pushing forward at the tip of the spear. And again, I can't thank you enough for coming on and really appreciate you taking the time today. Thanks, Thomas. It was a pleasure. I, I really appreciate it. Um, anytime you let me know, I'll, I'll be uh, very, very uh, more than happy to come back on. Awesome. Thank you so much.